Okay, so we've been, we've been going through the, the Freedom Project, and I just really want to encourage you, if you have missed a message um, throughout this, this, this series, I want to encourage you to actually visit our website, www.gochurch.coza, and please do try and catch up, because often what happens in this series is that it's a continuation we feed off from uh, the previous messages. So I want to encourage you to just make sure that you, you catch up and you are not, you're not left, left behind. Okay, so the title of my message, continuing with the Freedom Project, the title of my message this morning is Positioning Your Mind for Freedom. All right, say to your neighbor, Positioning Your Mind for Freedom. Positioning your mind for freedom. And so basically, what I'm going to do in this message is I'm going to take you through the rationale for this type of message. Why do we really need to position our mind um, for freedom? And then after that, I'd like us to go through some paradigm shifts that we need to take in order to position ourselves for complete freedom in Christ and also for us to fully embrace that freedom. So we'll go through um, a set of paradigm shifts and then thereafter I will conclude the message. Amen. Amen. All right, so say to your neighbor, get ready. All right. So when we talk about positioning, what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about this is when you put something in place. So when you're positioning your mind, you're putting it in a particular place for a particular purpose. And so not only are you putting it in a particular place, but you're determining the position. You're determining where it should be. You're also aligning your mind to something. You're also setting it or creating a platform or a, a, con a conducive atmosphere to something. So that is the gist of positioning your mind for freedom. And when we talk about positioning your mind for freedom, we're ensuring that the disposition of your life embraces the fullness of the freedom that Christ has for us. So we know that the enemy is always destined to make sure that he plays mind games with us. So we need to be sure that if we are going to embrace the fullness of the freedom that Jesus has bestowed, in our, has bestowed for us, then our minds should be ready for that. Our minds should be prepared for us so that we can capture what God has for us. So why is it important to position your mind for freedom? Okay. Here is the fact. There is no honorary victory from the devil. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. There is no honorary victory from the enemy. So I know you know of people who get honorary degrees from different universities or places of academia. Some people actually have more honorary degrees than they have, you know, been in class. Okay, so we see that in our natural life. But in our walk with Christ, what happens is that the devil will never allow you to be victorious in Christ. The devil will always want to do all he can to make sure that you will not achieve the purposes that God has called you to. So there is no honorary victory from the enemy. So we're always warring against the enemy. There's always a vicious war for, the, for those in the kingdom of God against those against the, the enemy. 
I like what it says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. It says, be sober, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a rolling, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the word that is used there for that term devour is actually the Greek word katapien. All right, the Greek word katapien, which literally means to swallow or to drown. So the connotation there is that the enemy moves around looking for every opportunity to actually drown you or to swallow you or to devour you. So he's not determined to make sure to, for you to, to, to be victorious. Number two, the devil will not let you inherit the promises of God just like that on a silver platter. So he's going to fiercely fight you every step of the way and you're going to have to fight back and defend your territory. And I think this is something that we need to continually learn and understand as Christians that we also need to fight back. We need to defend our, our territory. We need to, to defend the prophecies God has given us. We need to defend the promises of God that is given us for our lives. And so there is that continued war. Nothing for Mahala as far as the devil is concerned. When the devil afflicts you, often he goes for the most severe kind of destruction. The Bible tells us that the thief comes to, to, steer, to, to steal, kill, and destroy. And so when the enemy is after you, he goes for the most severe form of destruction. I read this um, proverb. Apparently it's very common in West Africa. And it goes something like this. When they take blood from you, they will not take palm oil, even though they may have the same color. When they take blood from you, they will not take palm oil, even though they may be the same color. So basically, what the proverb is trying to say is that every, when the enemy comes to attack, he goes for the most destructive form of attack over your life. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at different paradigm shifts to position ourselves for complete freedom in Christ. So what is a paradigm? A paradigm is a fundamental change in approach and lying assumptions and underlying assumptions. A fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. Another way to define a paradigm is an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. So when we talk about a paradigm shift, we're talking about a change, a shift, a new way of thinking, a new way of, of perspective, a new way of looking at, at something. And so the first paradigm I'd like us to look at is you have a kingly anointing. Say to the person next to you, I have a kingly anointing. I have a kingly anointing. Okay, so that's the first paradigm shift I'd like us to, to look at. And I'm going to give you just a bit of context here. We're going to be looking at the, the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'll give you a bit of background. So basically what happened here, we're not going to read the full chapter. But what happened here is that there's a king in Israel during the time of Elijah. And his name is Ahab. 
but he's also married to a woman called Jezebel. And what had happened during this time in chapter 18 is that Jezebel was so influential in Israel that he had enticed the whole of Israel, most of Israel, to actually worship her gods. So during this time, the gods that she worshipped were gods like Baal, and there was another one called Asherah. So she had actually influenced the whole of Israel to worship, to worship these particular gods. So what do we know about the gods that Israel had now come to worship? So Israel had forsaken the law of God. Israel had forsaken the direction of God. Israel had had forsaken the leading of God and was now worshiping foreign gods. And what do we know about one of these gods called Baal? Now one of the names of Baal is actually the, the name or the term the Lord of the Covenant. In Hebrew, when you look at that term Baal, it means husband or marriage. So in Hebrew, Baal actually means husband or marriage. So it is interesting to know that Israel was now in a place where they had divorced themselves, where they had broken covenant with God and had begun to worship this, this particular, particular God. And the other god that they, they, Jezebel worshipped was a god called Asherah. Now the worship of the god Asherah was noted for its sensuality and prostitution. Can you imagine the state of this particular nation? Number one, you, you're worshipping a god who is determined or is focused on breaking covenants. Or you're worshipping a god who's noted for sensuality and prostitution, the whole of Israel. But we also know that Jezebel was very influential at this time. And what do we know about a Jezebel spirit? What does the Bible actually say about a Jezebel spirit? And we know that the Bible says a Jezebel spirit is the, is, the, is the spirit in the church that teaches and leads the people of God astray so that they can commit acts of immorality. And where do we get that from? If you look at Revelation 2 verse 20, and this is the word of the Lord to the church in Theatra, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So a Jezebel spirit is not only a spirit that entices people to sacrifice to idols, but it also encourages them to commit sexual immorality. What we also know about the Jezebel spirit, it is that spirit, it is a domineering spirit, and also it is a controlling spirit, it is a manipulating spirit, it is a spirit of rebellion, it is a spirit of witchcraft, and it is a spirit that... um, It is a a, a spirit that basically controls and influences at, at a higher level. So this was the state of affairs in Israel, worshiping Baal, worshiping Asherah, being influenced by this Jezebel spirit. So Elijah then comes to the scene, and I was thinking that if this were, you know, maybe in, in our day today, uh, uh, today, if Elijah were to deliver 
a state of the nation address at this time in king in 1 kings 18 at the time in the context of our day it would probably read something like this this is elijah in israel prophets of the god of israel those who are still alive if any priests of the god of israel those who have not been polluted by deceiving spirits of this land, King Ahab, generals of the army of God, Elisha, my servant, comrades and friends, all protocol observed. And at this stage, there was probably an applause. It is with deep regrets that I, Elijah, the prophet of God, a.k.a. man of God, advise that Israel has forsaken her God and fallen into sin. Then there were murmurings in the audience. I have walked across the full breadth of Israel and note with utter disgust the innumerable billboards that showcase the false gods of Baal and Asherah. All media channels are inundated with talk shows, advertising, and jingles encouraging the worship of these false gods. Trending on social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, are reports that currently 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah eat at Jezebel's table at the expense of Israel and are also on Israel's payroll. And this is putting incredible pressure on Israel's budget. Furthermore, a gig that is set to attract thousands of people has been scheduled at JNS Jezebel National Stadium for next Sunday, a day that Israel should be worshipping her God. It is also believed that at this gig, Queen Jezebel is launching her new song, He Ain't My God. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, my committee has devised a three-and-a-half-year strategy entitled Operation No Rain, ONNR. At this stage, Elijah is heckled, but he continues. In addition, my committee is in the final stages of putting together a project dubbed hashtag Prophets of Baal and Asherah Must Fall. Details pertaining to this monumental project are being safeguarded. At this stage, paper kites are thrown at him. I warn you, Israel, believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe in his prophets, and you shall prosper. My name is Elijah, Minister of Prophecy in the office of the Most High God, Jehovah, God of Israel. At this stage, chance of Elijah must fall led by Queen Jezebel fill the room as the man of God exists. This would probably have been the state of affairs at the time when all these things were, were happening. And we know the rest of the story and we pick it up in 1 Kings 18 verse 40. And it says yeah, Elijah then said to them seize the prophets of Baal and do not let them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and ex executed them there. And these were about 450 prophets who were executed 
at this at this particular time but what is interesting and i don't know if you've noticed this when you read this particular chapter what is interesting is that they only they only mention that it was it was the prophets of baal that were executed but there is no mention of the prophets of asherah but the bible prior to that tells us that elijah had summoned the 400 prophets of asherah as well as the 450 prophets of baal to actually come and assemble so that he could do his showdown and i've often wondered was it because the prophets of asherah decided you know what you don't just be summoned to a meeting with somebody like elijah and you rock up I think they were quite clever. They probably preserved their lives that way. You don't just get somebody like Elijah call you and you rock up. Do you think it's because he just wants to socialize with you and he doesn't have time to do other stuff? So they, it's interesting that they're actually not, not mentioned here. And the point I want to drive here as well is that. So the 450 prophets of Baal have been killed. They're now executed. But there still remains in Israel a problem. Jezebel, the main culprit, the most influential force in Israel against the God of Israel, she was still alive and just as powerful. She was still alive and just as powerful. So in other words, the problems of Israel had not been solved. They were still influenced by this strong territorial governing spirit at this time in Israel. And it is also interesting to see that even though Elijah slew the prophets of Baal, he didn't have a kingly anointing to actually deal with Jezebel. Even though Elijah slew the prophets of Baal, Elijah didn't have a kingly anointing. And it would take a kingly anointing to deal with Jezebel and the Jezebel spirit. And what I find interesting is if you read into two Kings, in, in 2 Kings 9 from verse 30, this is what it says. Now Jehu, Jehu at this time had become king and Ahab had died. So now Jehu had become king and he came to Jezreel. Jezebel heard of it and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. In other words, they threw Jezebel down. And some of her, the Bible gets quite graphic here, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank and said, Go now, see to this accursed woman, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her and found no, one, no more of her than the skull and feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which, spoke, which was spoken by Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as the refuse of the surface of the field. In the plot at Jezreel, so they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. It was a kingly anointing 
that dealt with the Jezebel spirit. And it wasn't, it wasn't even Elijah, even though Elijah had prophesied that this is the kind of death that Jezebel was going to die, but it actually took a kingly anointing to actually finally deal with Jezebel and effected a death through King Je- um, Jehu. And what I'd like us to do is, I'd like us to switch to the New Testament. I want to show you something from Revelation 5, 8 to 10. Revelation 5, verse 8 to 10. And it talks about Jesus. So it says, Now when he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tongue and tribe and nation, and have made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth, and have made us kings and priests to God our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And it's interesting here that it says that when, because the lamb was slain, certain things came into effect. And here, John tells us that when the lamb was slain, basically what happened was that we were redeemed to God by the blood of Jesus. And not only that, but out of every every tribe, out of every tongue, and out of every nation. But more importantly, it goes on to say that we have been made kings and priests unto our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And my question to you this morning is, What strategies of the enemy have sought to hinder you from attaining your complete freedom in Christ? What lies of the enemy, sometimes even demonically inspired lies, have you believed that need to be deconstructed so that your mind can be positioned to believe God again? So what the Bible tells us, we see from the book of 1 Kings 8 that it took a kingly anointing to deal with a spirit like a Jezebel spirit. In Revelation 5, the Bible tells us that we've been made kings and priests unto our God and we shall reign forever. So that means we've been given the power by virtue of our relationship in Christ. We've been given the power to actually be able to deal with any strategy, any spirit of the enemy, any Jezebelic spirits in our lives or even in our nation that there's no spirits Jezebelic in our individual lives or nation that we cannot conquer if we are fully submitted to to Christ. So there's no controlling spirit. There's no domineering spirit. There's no manipulating spirit. There's no spirit of witchcraft or rebellion that we are not able to overcome if our minds have fully embraced the revelation that we are in the new covenant kings and priests unto our God. So basically what we're saying is that currently, even in this present life, we function in a ruling capacity. We function in a ruling uh, capacity, especially if you're born again. We have an inheritance based on our relationship with Christ, which, 
which is he's our Lord and Savior, and we have submitted to that particular association. And bear in mind that Christ is not Savior to everybody, but he's Savior to those who only fully rely in him and on him as their only Savior. So what we are saying is that in the new covenant, we have the full rights, we have the full privileges of the heavenly kingdom. We are actually kings in royalty with Christ. Kings in royalty with Christ. So say to the person next to you, I have a kingly anointing. And that's a winning mindset. That's the kind of mindset that liberates us from the de devil's strategies in our lives. Okay. So that's the first paradigm shift. The next paradigm shift I'd like us to have a look at is it may take a battle to procure what God has already said is yours. It may take a battle to procure what God has already said is yours. In Joshua 6 from verse 1, it reads, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Its king and its mighty men of valor. See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and mighty men of valor. And this is just as the children of Israel were entering the promised land. But before they even fight one battle, God gives them, he basically tells them and declares to them that I've actually given Jericho to you. Not only have I given Jericho to you, but I've also given you its king. I've also given you its, might, its, its mighty man of valor. So even before the, go, the battle uh, begins, God makes it clear to Tim Joshua that they have conquered this particular city. But what is interesting is that even though God has given them those particular words, he then went on, they still needed to fight for Jericho. They still needed to actually conquer this particular city. So in verse 3, it goes on to say, You shall march around the city. All you men of war, you shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow your trumpets. It shall come to pass when, they when a long blast, when they, uh, with the, when they blow a long blast horn, then you shall hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So the real task before them had to be faced and tackled. Before, and what's interesting about this principle is that before we conquer our promised land, the enemy has to be displaced first. There's a disposition that has to take, to take place before we can actually conquer the enemy. My question to you is what enemy, what struggle, what mountain, what hurdle do you have to eliminate in this season 
and life stage before you can advance to your promised land? What are the struggles? What are the battles? What are those things that you have to fight for? What are those things that you have to eliminate so that you can conquer your promised land? And I don't know what it is in your situation or in your life. Maybe it's a bad attitude. Maybe, maybe you've taken offense concerning certain things. Maybe it's some sin that, is, uh, that has entangled you. Maybe it's some, even some form of unbelief in some, in some area. But the fact of the matter is, before we embrace the fullness and the benefits of our promised land, we've got to fight, we've got to battle, we've got to eliminate those things that act as a hindrance to us. And then it goes on to say, in, um, we pick it up in verse 15, and it says, But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great sound that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed it, all that was in the city, both men and women, young and old ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. God first gives a promise that I've given you this city. And then after that, God maps out a fighting strategy, a strategy on how to actually conquer and win that particular city. So what kind of mindset did it take to defeat Jericho? First of all, it was actually an act of faith. They believed God. They were not too sure what it meant going around the city for six days and then on the seventh day, you know, shouting, uh, going around it seven times. It actually didn't make any sense. I mean, we don't have to be army generals to see that this kind of military strategy does not seem to make sense. But what they did is they stepped out in, in faith. They decided to heed the word of God. They believed God at his word and they decided that they were still going to do it. So it actually took faith to conquer Jericho. And it's the very same thing in our lives. There are certain situations that we will not overcome unless we embrace faith. There are certain things that we're not going to overcome unless we believe the word of God, even in situations and instances where it doesn't seem to make sense. And I know you guys have got different examples, so do I, of many situations when God will seem to be saying this, and in your mind you're thinking it doesn't really make sense, how is this all going to pan out? 
But when we believe his word, when we believe him in faith, when we take hold of his promises for our life, irrespective of what our natural circumstances may look like, we are bound to obtain victory. We are bound to conquer our promised land. So it was faith that actually um, was instrumental in defeating Jericho. The next thing was obedience. Joshua and Israel followed the exact battle plan. Now, I don't know about you. Sometimes I'm not very good at following every piece of detail. But it is interesting here that they were so obedient to God that they did exactly as God had commanded them. They didn't even use any shortcuts. How many of you in your lives have always wanted to expedite the processes of God in your life? God will say the one thing, and then on the other hand, you are trying to actually put in your methods so that you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And we're often tempted in this, in this way. So they decided to obey. They decided to follow the exact battle plan that God had given them. Could it be that we failed to conquer certain battles because our obedience in Christ is not complete? My question to you this morning is to what extent do you really follow the word of God? To what extent do you fully obey God? Have you used shortcuts before? Have you manipulated the ways of God so that it can suit your needs? So there was faith, there was obedience. The third thing was courage. Israel followed the battle, the battle plan, despite danger and uncertainty. What is interesting about Jericho is that Jericho wasn't a big city. It wasn't in, in the context of other cities uh, during that time. It wasn't uh, a, city, a big city at all, but it was an important fortress city. That is why it was, it, was, it was important. So they followed the battle plan despite the danger and the uncertainty. The fourth aspect is that there was endurance. Israel followed the battle plan over a period of time, even when it seemed that nothing was happening. I mean, doing this for seven days, walking around the city, you really have to have this, some strength and some endurance in you. So Israel took Jericho. It was clear that God gave, but the Israelites had to shift their mindset to a state of obedience and persistent faith. Are we in that place where we say to ourselves, irrespective of the circumstances, the struggles, the confusion in my life, I will remain in that state of obedience and persistence. Okay, so that was paradigm shift number two. The third paradigm shift I'd like us to look at is you have been empowered to reclaim the dominion mandate. You have been empowered to reclaim the dominion mandate. And basically, when we talk about the, the dominion mandate, just want to use this scripture in Genesis 1 from verse 26. This is God speaking, and he says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh 
the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the earth, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on earth. That word dominion that is used in this particular verse, verse um, 28, it is actually translated from the Hebrew word radar. Hebrew word radar, which basically means to subjugate, to rule, to reign, and also to prevail against. So what God was basically saying to man was that you've got to subdue, you've got to subjugate the earth. You've got to rule and reign over the earth. You've got to prevail against the, um, pre prevail in, um, over the earth. And the word subdue is translated from the, word, the Hebrew word kabash, which means to conquer and to bring into sub subjection. To conquer and to bring into submission, um, sub subjection. So what happens here, in Genesis 1, we see God giving man the dominion mandate. But we also know from Genesis 3, it records man's disobedience to God's specific instructions. That is the point when sin entered the earth and so, the, and so man ended up losing dominion of the earth and transferring pretty much the title deed to Satan. But what does the new covenant then tell us? In the new covenant we know that Christ paid the penalty for the sin of mankind on the cross. In Colossians 2 verse 15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So basically what Christ did, man has been given dominion. Man lo loses that particular dominion mandate to the enemy in Genesis 3. Christ comes on the scene in the New Testament and in Colossians the Bible makes it, makes it clear to us that he disarmed every principality and, and power. In other words, he basically took the, key, the keys of sin and death from, from the enemy. So even though man has been given dominion, we need to understand that this dominion is not limited to living creatures. He is to dominate the earth for its good, so such dominion is obviously under a stewardship and not as autonomous sovereignty. So the paradigm shift here enters when we understand that the key to reclaiming the dominion mandate as the church is we need to understand our authority as Christians. So it's, all, it's well and good to know that, yes, we've been given a dominion mandate. Yes, it was lost. Uh, yes, Christ then restored it. But unless we understand that we need to walk in the fullness of the authority that Christ has given us, we will not be able to take it back. 
I like what it says in Luke 10, verse 19. It says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And basically, when Jesus is telling this to his disciples, the concept of authority referred to there is power, its ability, its capability. So he was saying, I've given you power, I've given you ability, I've given you capability to complete what I send you out to do. In Matthew 8, 28 verse 16, it goes on to say, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Another scripture where authority is given to man is, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is Acts 1.8. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the reality is that there is an intense war that is raging between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the, the enemy. The devil will not leave us alone until he has achieved and until he has ensured that his purposes are also just as dominant in the, in the earth. And sometimes the sad thing in our reality today is that the devil seems to know much more about his assignment more than Christians sometimes do know what the assignment is. Have you noticed how there are certain civil groups that promote evil agendas? But have you noticed the passion with which they do that? Have you noticed the determination with which they actually do that? And to some extent, you look at them and wonder, you know, why is it that they've got so much passion? Why is it that they've got this so committed to their cause? And yet us as Christians who have been given the domain mandate to rule and reign on the earth, sometimes we don't seem to have sight of that particular um, ob um, obligation that Christ has given us to promote righteousness. The enemy is launching unprecedented attacks against God's most sacred institutions, like the family, like marriage. And the reason he knows that he does that is he knows that those particular institutions, like marriage, like family, they're the cornerstone of society. You break a family, you break society. If our marriage is unhealthy, our society is going to be, unhe is going to be unhealthy. And so he's launched that attack on, on the people of God. I want to encourage us this morning that it is time for us to step out of the pew, to position our minds and exercise our authority in Christ, to enter the battle of freedom for the nations, to enter the battle for freedom for the nation of the nations, and to ensure that we are not, we don't fall prey to the enemy. We all have a preferable future for, for our nation or for our families or businesses or particular situations. And I know that for most people in here, our desire is that we have more and more righteous people out there who hold offices, who will impact in the domains within which, within which they operate. 
I don't know what domain you're operating. Maybe it's church, maybe it's government, maybe it's politics, maybe it's education, maybe it's health, science, technology, arts, culture, media. But in whatever sphere of you, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you're a student, even in your school or in your college, in whatever circumstance that, that you find yourself in, God has called you to influence. God has called you to reclaim the dominion mandate. God has called you to push forward his purposes in that particular, particular um, setting. So I just want to encourage us that the dominion mandate is something that will be continued in our lives. It's something that if we fully embrace, then we're able to see the kingdom of God in its, in its fullness. My question to you is, do you understand the biblical worldview of the domain in which you operate? So let's say you're called to business. Do you know the biblical Christian worldview on business. If you call to education or you, you, you work in, edu in, the, in the education fraternity, have you taken time to actually understand what the biblical worldview on education is? The same with health, the same with science, technology, the same with government. Have you taken time to understand the biblical worldview of the, do the domain in which you operate? So what do we mean when we talk about a worldview? A guy called David Nobel, this is how he defines worldview. He says it's the framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. It is an ideology, philosophy, theology, movement or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, man's relations to God and the world. That's a definition of, the, of a, of a worldview. A biblical, a biblical worldview is based on the infallible word of God. When you believe that the Bible is true, then you allow it to be the foundation of everything you say and do. So what we're saying is that as Christians, there shouldn't be this dichotomy that when you are out of the four, the four walls of the church, you, you, you cease to be a Christian. There shouldn't be a dichotomy between sacred and secular. We won. And so we have to effect the kingdom of God in whatever area we're actually called to. So having a biblical worldview in our spheres of influence absolutely matters. Because if we don't believe the truth of God and live it, then our witness will be confusing and misleading. I like what it says in Colossians 2 verse 8. It says, taking captive, being taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So end of last year, like most of you in your organizations, you tend to have these end of year functions. Some of you call them Christmas parties. Some of you call them, I don't know, uh, um, end of year functions to be politically correct. So I happened to be in a meeting where we were brainstorming the theme for our year end function, our Christmas party as a, as a, as a division. Now my boss, and generally bosses tend to be influential in a meeting, right? 
She then comes up with this theme and says, so we're actually going to have the function end of October. It's like, yo, end of October, Halloween, let's have a Halloween theme. And not only that, but she then goes on to describe the kind of activities that she actually wanted carried out at this particular function. Says, yeah, then we can have, this is real, reality, real life story, last year, 2016 October, this was happening. Then we can have red paint so that it signifies blood. Then everybody, the dress code must be black. Everyone must be dressed in black. So we're sitting in this meeting, she's uttering these very things, and there's a group of us who are Christians. We had the option of saying, well, she's the boss, you know, she has the final say. But what we did was, there was, I remember something just whirled up in me. And I th even as, as this scripture in Colossians 2 says that we are taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. And I was thinking in my mind, she's thinking Halloween, I am thinking demonic principalities. I am thinking about the, the, the very spirits that were going to be depicted by this particular event. So basically, a group of us who are Christians in that meeting, we just say to her, if you go ahead with this particular theme, we boycott. We're not coming. We're not coming. And the question is, are we bold in our everyday situations to stand for what really matters, what honors God? Or are we taken captive by the philosophers and the designs of, of man? Do you walk in and believe in the biblical worldview pertaining to your, to your domain? So we've looked at the first paradigm shift, which is you have a kingly anointing. We have looked at the second one, which is it may take a battle to procure what God has already said is yours. We have looked at the third paradigm shift, which is you have been empowered to reclaim the dominion mandate. And the fourth paradigm shift we're going to look at is you're a child of the promise. In Galatians 4 verse 21, this is Paul speaking to the church in Galatia. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bond woman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bond woman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with the children. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, was are children of the promise. And it continues in Galatians 5 in the first verse, stand therefore in the liberty. In other versions of the Bible it says, stand therefore in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
It is interesting to see that here, Paul encourages the church in Galatia to, be actually, to actually be steadfast in their freedom from the Mosaic law and not to go back to it. But he was trying to say to them, you now have a new freedom in Christ. You now live in a, new, in a, in a completely different covenant. You have obtained freedom from Christ. It has been announced to you via the gospel. So do not be entangled anymore to Jewish bondage. And it is that, in that mindset that we forge ahead in our journey with Christ. It is that kind of a mindset that, that tells us, that reveals to us that, God is set up, that Jesus Christ has actually given us um, freedom from bondage that distinguishes us the free from the slave, that distinguishes a life lived in the spirit from a life lived by the flesh, that differentiates the saved from the heathen, and that separates those who are faith-driven from those devoid of faith. We are children of the promise. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 19, it goes on to say, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of our God. Christ Jesus, from what Paul tells us, is the confirmation that seals God's promises for our life. And God's in those promises, we know that in there is encapsulated um, freedom. And the final paradigm shift I'd like to look at it is you're a chosen generation. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it reads, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And that word chosen that is used in that particular verse is actually the Greek word ekletos, which talks about being picked out from among a larger group for special service and privileges. So if the Bible tells us that we are a chosen generation, the depiction there is that we've been taken out from a larger group for a particular service or a particular privilege. And it is, it is, um, that is our inheritance, that is, that is our rights. So there are those paradigm shifts that when we embrace them, when we walk in them, when we, we allow them to operate in our lives, then we are more likely to advance in our journey and in our call in Christ. My question to you this morning is, to what extent is your mind positioned to attain the fullness of the freedom that Christ has given us? I just want to conclude by looking at Ephesians 4. I'm reading from verse 17. This I say... Therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of the mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, 
who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you have not learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of the mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God and in true righteousness and holiness. You have been, and, and be, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul talks about a renewal in the spirit, not just in the mind, but in the spirit of, of the mind. So the reality is that as Christians, we are in battle concerning our minds. We have to position our minds for victory and for freedom. You either be a person who controls your mind or you'll be controlled by your mind if you don't. Your mind is an area of most consistent attack by the enemy. And Satan often, often he tries to capture our minds because he knows that as long as he establishes his stronghold in your mind, then he can actually take anything else in, in your life. But the good news is this, you can win the battle in the mind. You do not have to be defeated in your walk with the Lord. You do not have to have a slave to be a slave to worry and fear. You do not have to live in a, a life controlled by lusts and desires for the flesh. You can live your life under the control of the Spirit of God. I want to encourage you to walk, to position your mind for victory to position your mind to embrace that which God has given you. I want to encourage you, even in your personal life, to take a moment when you go back home or in the next couple of days to actually bring to remembrance the words, the prophecies that God has spoken over your life. To actually begin to take those words and war according to those particular prophecies. I want to encourage you to actually look into your life, to actually take um, a deep dive into your life and say to yourself, what are the areas, what are the situations, what are the weaknesses, what are the struggles in my life that are preventing me or hindering me from attaining the fullness of the freedom that's, that Christ has given us. I also want to encourage you to actually seek the Holy Spirit because often what happens with the enemy is he doesn't come with the obvious. There are hidden strategies that the enemy also uses. The Bible talks about the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. David says in, in the book of Psalm that, Lord, hide me from the insurrection, from the rebellion, from the plots of the workers of iniquity. So in other words, the devil, what he actually does is he plots evil over our lives. He plots evil for our circumstances. And those things, sometimes they cannot be seen or are not evident through the natural eye. That is why we have to take time in our prayer times, in our quiet times, to say to the Lord, are there any hidden strategies that the enemy is employing against me? And if so, what are they? And if so, what is the strategy that I should be winning, that I should be using so that I can be an overcomer and win in those particular circumstances? Shall we rise to our feet and pray?